for that. A couple quick things to mention before we uh, jump into the word this morning. Um, yes, it is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all those of you who are mothers, grandmothers, aunts, and especially those of you, um, all of you, who are spiritual mothers. As the Church of Jesus Christ, it is a blessing and a joy that each one of us as women either is already or becomes a spiritual mother to many of those, many of those who, are, who are younger than us. I was blessed to have a couple of those in my life. Um, and they are irreplaceable. So we celebrate that. That is certainly something that we can celebrate on Mother's Day. And secondly, as Liz mentioned, we occasionally have a sound issue on Sunday mornings. And so as you are praying for the Sunday service uh, on every Sunday morning, I invite you to just pray for, for our sound guys, for the tech guys who have stepped up in this, in this season as we are shifting, as we are transitioning to, to a new soundboard. A new soundboard and new technology always comes with some difficulties, and these, these folks have courageously stepped up to figure this out. And so I invite you to just be praying for them as they are, as they are f- learning the, the curves of a new soundboard. This morning, we are continuing in our sermon series called The Lifestyle of Jesus, Following a Different Way. Just by way of reminder, we're looking at how Jesus lived his life. So not necessarily what he said or what he taught, although that's very important, but how we see him living his life and how that can be inspiration for us to then do the same. So today we're looking at a discipline which Jesus employed that was essential to the way that he carried himself, that he knew what his purpose and his mission was, that he knew how to speak to others and to treat others, how he gained wisdom and discerned his next steps. Something that for Jesus wasn't just a form of self-therapy, which we can often turn spiritual disciplines into without realizing it as if they're just a form of self-care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline myself to do this and this and this so that I can feel better and more relaxed in my day, right? It, it fits very much with our consumeristic culture. Take, 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 right? This is, this is about me. This is about me feeling good about myself and about my faith and that I'm a disciplined person and it's great. But Jesus didn't live that way. He didn't do these things for himself or to feel good or to try to be in ha- as happy as possible. That's not how he found purpose and meaning in life. He He did it for the kingdom of God, first and foremost, and then for others. He walked the pathway. He shows us a pathway. He is the pathway to flourishing. And to follow him in this without a certain amount of discipline isn't really following him at all. As Henry Nouwen once put it, a spiritual life without discipline is impossible. Just as we can't learn to to play the guitar if it's just sitting in the corner of our house, like Danny and I currently have in our house. He said he was going to learn it. (laughs) Just as we can't do that, we also can't treat our faith in that way. We can't have it sitting in the corner of our lives to pick up, you know, every so often whenever we want to and not actively seek ways to develop it and to grow it. This is, again, a 24-7 activity that we're doing. We're following Jesus with everything we've got, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is why we're spending 12 weeks learning how to do this looking at how Jesus did it. So this morning, again, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're kind of hop-skipping through the Gospel, looking at certain passages, and today we're looking at chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. So Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 38. Luke writes this, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the house of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. 
At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so what do we see Jesus doing in this passage? Well, he's doing a lot of things. Based on what's come before, he's just left the synagogue. So he's just spent a whole day preaching to teaching to crowds of people, multiple crowds of people. And then he goes to the house of Simon, to Simon's house, which, as we know, was kind of a home base for them in Capernaum. You know, every ministry often has like a home base. This was, this was Jesus and his disciples' home base. Four of the disciples actually came from Capernaum. Um, so it would make sense. They probably did a little stop in here quite often. So he enters the house after a long day, Right? And Luke, the doctor, of course, tells us that Simon's mom had a high fever. In other words, hey, Jesus, can you, can you just do one more thing today? <laughs> do, you, do you have space to just do one more thing? Jesus rebukes the fever. And Simon's mother gets up and, and at once starts to serve them. So evidently, this, we're talking about a, a full healing here. She's been completely cured and the whole house goes nuts. And if that wasn't enough to close off Jesus' day, right? If that wasn't enough, after a whole day of teaching, and then the hope that he would heal somebody, and then there's all these people in the house, if that wasn't enough, at sunset we see, quote-unquote, the people, so we're probably talking a whole crowd of individuals who had been pursuing Jesus, bringing their needs to him. Okay, It's it's likely here that the Sabbath was starting the next day, and, and the next day started at evening. So at sunset, that was your last opportunity to try to do something that wouldn't be against the law on Sabbath. So folks are trying to squeeze in as much time as they can with Jesus before the sun goes down and and bringing all these sick people and people with problems to Jesus. And he lays his hands, the text says, on each one of them, each one of them, and heals them. Some of them are demon-possessed, and the demons, who are the only ones at this point who know who Jesus is, are screaming out his identity so that the crowds will figure out and, and, and start some sort of, figure out who he is and start some sort of nationalist messianic movement, right? That was what, that's not at all, of course, what Jesus wanted. That wasn't the way that he was going. But the demons know who he is and they know that they could incite something to happen here. So they're screaming out his name. And Jesus rebukes them as he did the fever, which is interesting. And we read this and go, wow. That all happened in a day. Like, Jesus is amazing, right? We prize people that are good at doing so much in a day. Like, how do you fill up your day with all these things? But can you imagine how exhausted he must have been? The last thing that that I would ever want after a long day's work would be to be bombarded by crowds of people demanding things of me. It'd be like coming home after a 12-hour day and your whole neighborhood has invited themselves over to your house and now wants you to feed them dinner, right? That, that, that's the last thing you want. And yet, do we hear a peep out of Jesus? Does he ever complain 
or grumble or groan that it's too much or send people away. No. And not because he's an extrovert and just has bundles of energy. And it's not because he just feels guilty and is fine with overworking himself like most of us do. Jesus always seems to have time for people. He always seems to have just enough energy in the tank for one more person. Just enough margin in life for helping someone in need. But he was only able to do this to meet the insistent and incessant needs of others and to juggle all of these daily tasks with such grace and such love and such mercy because he prioritized something else. Verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. When telling the same story, so the same story is, is told in the Gospel of Mark, and when Mark shares it, he adds the line that Jesus went to a solitary place to pray. Now, Luke's assuming that we know that that's probably what Jesus was doing. Um, it's not that he didn't think that that's what Jesus was going to a solitary place to do, but Luke is putting a different emphasis here. Jesus went to a solitary place. End stop. He went to a solitary place. In other words, Jesus left to go and be alone for a while. And we know that this was a frequent habit for Jesus because all of the gospel writers attest to this. Matthew 14, after he had dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. Mark 1, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Mark 6, after leaving there, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Luke 5, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying. And even, even before the end of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Jesus frequently took time away from everyone else to be alone. And I want to push this morning that this is actually the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. What kept him steady, what kept him focused, what kept him attentive. It was like the, the pacemaker of his ministry. No matter how full his days were, to seek out a solitary place, was the first and most necessary thing that Jesus did in his day. Because look at what comes after in, this, in these verses. The crowds come and find him, right? They're actively searching for him. They're pursuing him. How exhausting must that have been, right? Everywhere you go, you've got somebody chasing after you. They're actively searching for him, which was fair enough, because they'd already seen what Jesus had done. So, you know, why not follow him? But they find where he is, and verse 42, they tried to keep him from leaving them. Apparently, Jesus is leaving. Luke hasn't told us that explicitly, but evidently the people figured it out. It's why Jesus went away, to a solitary place. It's why he needed to be alone before anything else happened in that day. Because he needed to stop, be attentive, and discern. And evidently, what he discerned 
was that it was time to move on. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, he says, because that is why I was sent. What is he doing then by himself on this mountainside? He's spending time with his father, being reminded of who he is, what he's called to, and what that means for the present moment, what that means for today. He comes out of that solitary time with God, having a clear picture of who he is, what his role is, and what now he must do. In other words, Luke's telling us that Jesus' approach wasn't just about bringing prayer into every one of his daily tasks, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. You know, um, he definitely did that, which we saw in the, in the baptism. But here Luke is emphasizing the need for communing with God in a space completely outside of one's daily tasks, away from the hubbub of other people, away from the tasks and demands and the expectations, away from all the identities of, of rabbi, teacher, leader, son, brother, to be reminded of his most foundational identity and out of that to discern how he must live to be reminded of his foundational identity and to discern out of that place how now he must live. Because the very next thing that we see him doing in Luke, actually, in the next chapter, is calling his first disciples. So he's not just flying by the seat of his pants here, making decisions willy-nilly as he goes along, like, oh, I like you, I'll pick you, I'll pick you. No, he's not making it up. He's, he's been given guidance he spent a morning with his father, and now he knows what he's supposed to do. Which is why he says to the people in verse 43, I need to go and continue the mission. Continue the tasks that the father has given me to do. I, I can't do what you want me to do. Because I need to do what he's asked me to do. And that may sound a little bit you know, pushy, but Jesus' concern here isn't to be a people pleaser. Right? He's not there to cater to the demands of others who want him to do certain things for them. He can speak with confidence and not worry about their expectations because he's just spent his whole morning listening to the voice of the Father telling him what's best. What's actually best for everyone, even though they don't realize it. As Richard Foster put it, all relevant data is considered, to be sure, but decisions stem from a source deeper than facts and figures. Once we have understood the mind of the Father, we can speak our yes or no with confidence. This is what Jesus does. He's able to speak a yes or a no with confidence because he's focused not on the expectations of others, but on the expectations of the Father who he's just spent his morning communing with. This is what he does. He's, he has sought the mind of the Father, not to the exception of other realities, but his primary goal is hearing the Father's voice. Then he can speak confidently and gently push against the expectations and desires of others. Not to say that those desires aren't good, but they need to be placed in proper priority. Jesus needed to be in solitude Similar to the temptations in the wilderness that we looked at a couple weeks ago, he had, to, he had to be in solitude to be reoriented in God's way, 
And if Luke's telling us that that was important for Jesus, then obviously it must be important for us as well. If this is something Jesus had to do, it should be important to us as well. A couple weeks ago, we we spoke about all the noises that exist around us, and it reminded me of something C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, when he depicts the demons just railing against silence as a danger to their cause, right? Because the devil, the devil's kingdom is a kingdom of noise, he writes. That's their goal, is, is to create a universe that's just one big noise. For the Christian to enter into silence then is to enter the realm of the enemy, the the realm of God, the realm of the creator. That's God's realm. Noise is the devil's realm. Silence is God's realm. Henry Nouwen spoke years ago at at the Crystal Cathedral, and he shared how the world we live in wants to fill every space of our lives with something, with noise, with with something to occupy ourselves with. It It wants us to constantly be occupied with something. And if we're not occupied with something, we're preoccupied with something else. If we're not busy with something, we're worrying about something else. And he says, when we try to spend just just 10 minutes doing nothing, before you know it, you feel like your head is a banana tree full of monkeys jumping around. I should do this. I should do that. I have to write a letter. I have to go here. I forgot that. I'm still angry at this person. This person's angry at me. I should have done that. I didn't do this. And so we end up making ourselves so busy with other things that we never actually have time to deal with all of that. And there's a fear that develops, a a fear of emptiness, a desire to avoid the monkeys. (laughs) So we always want to do, we always want to have something to do, somewhere to go, something to be busy with. But discipline, he says, discipline is keeping some space open, leaving some space for emptiness, sheer nothingness, so that we can hear the voice of God. Because underneath all of these other voices, underneath all of that other noise, there is a tender, gentle voice that wants to speak with you. It's why Jesus said in Mark 6, come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. That's why he says in in Matthew chapter 10, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Translation, you don't need a beer and Netflix. That's not going to fix it. That's just a temporary solution, a band-aid solution that feels good in the moment. What you need, says Jesus, is time away with me. And to do that, you need to sometimes get away from the noise and, and other people. Why does he say this? Because as apprentices of Jesus, he knows that we are constantly occupied, overly occupied with other things. We're overtired, we're overbusy, we're overstimulated, and our default approach is is the opposite of Jesus, right? Our, Our schedules get so full, life gets so hectic, everyone's vying for our time, and the solitary time away is the first thing to go rather than the go to. Tish Harrison Warren in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, speaks of a time when she sought to establish a morning routine of solitude. So she wanted to, you know, be able to get up in the morning and just have five minutes of just time with God. But she found out pretty quickly that uh, her smartphone was like digital caffeine for her. 
You know, it became this thing that she depended on. It was, it was the only thing that could prod her, her foggy mind awake. But it meant that each morning, she says, she was imprinted with technology. It was her comfort space. All good things came from her phone. For it, it, she could no longer do without it. Even, even to go without five or ten minutes was like entering that, that scary, empty place. And because that's the first thing that she did every morning, technology began to fill every empty moment in the day, she writes. Just before breakfast, I'd quickly scroll through email, Facebook, Twitter, a blog, and then again an hour later. I'd ignore my kids' persistent calls for milk and snacks. I'd sneak in five minutes online as they ate lunch. I'd return from an errand and sit in the driveway with the car running, scrolling through news on my phone. And then I'd check my screen again before bedtime. Without realizing it, I had slowly built a habit, a steady resistance to and dread of boredom. Boredom or emptiness. There was a study done uh, in the University of Virginia, at the University of Virginia, which showed that if given the choice, most people preferred undergoing electric shock to sitting alone with their thoughts away from their phones, even for just 15 minutes. It's a pretty scary thought. Most people preferred the electric shock than sitting alone by themselves for 15 minutes. I remember uh, back in the day riding the 99 bus in Vancouver, and if you've ever ridden the 99 bus, it is a full bus. That bus packs more people in uh, in a day than Air Canada did back, back when, before COVID, in a day into their planes. But I remember riding the 99 bus across Vancouver every weekday morning for, for classes at Regent, and every single person, there were days when every single person sitting there would be on their phone. Every single person. And I would think to myself, I would sit there and think to myself, I don't want to. I'm tempted to, but I don't want to. Is, that, is it really a good thing? How am I meant to be different in this situation? What could I do that is better than what everyone else here is doing? What could I do that is more mindful of the sacred, of a sacred space that even a 99 bus could be in Vancouver. Because you know, there are always, there are always consequences to following the status quo. Warren says this, our addiction to stimulation, input and entertainment, all these things that we constantly try to input ourselves with, empties us out, ironically, empties us out and makes us boring, <laughs> unable to embrace the ordinary wonders of life in Christ. Unable to embrace the ordinary wonders of life in Christ. Is that what we want? To be so emptied and, and hollowed out by the noises and the demands of our own societal lifestyles that we miss out on the richness to be found in the way of Jesus? John Mark Comer says this, in seasons of busyness, we need more time in the quiet space, not less. Definitely not less. 
And he says this, if you're running through your Rolodex of, of excuses right now, you know, I'm a full-time mom, I have a demanding job that starts early, I'm an extrovert, I have ADHD, etc. Stop for a minute. Think about this. Jesus needed time in the quiet space. I repeat, Jesus needed time, and a fair bit of it. You think you don't? When we don't practice the habits of Jesus, Comer says, we reap the consequences. We feel distant from God. We feel distant from ourselves. We feel anxious and always playing catch-up. We feel exhausted. We turn to escapes of choice, running out of energy. We become easy prey for the tempter. And then emotional health starts settling in, right? We get easily angered, defensive. We feel sad a lot of the time. But in silence and solitude, he says, our souls finally come home. In silence and solitude, our souls finally come home. The first discipline of the Christian life is communion with God. It's what our hearts were made for. But most of us just don't give it the time. So it's no wonder that we struggle so much feeling at peace and discernment and, and when making decisions. Right? We often just pick the path of least resistance or the one that makes the most sense or is the most reasonable. But it's only because we don't actually take the time out to sit in the silence and ask the divine voice what he desires of us. To speak into it. Which when he does, can elicit a really significant amount of joy. When you know that the Father has spoken to you and given you direction, that brings a lot of joy. There was a semester at Regent, I was taking a, a course on classical literature and Christian history, and one of the books we read was, a, was by a fellow named Francis de Sales, it was back in like 16th century, and uh, he wrote a book on a whole series of spiritual exercises that you could do, devotional type exercises. And one of the assignments in the class was to, to go and actually do one of those exercises, which is a great thing to do in grad school, right? It's a nice little, nice little breather from reading. So I, I went upstairs in the Regent building, and, and upstairs on the top floor, there was a little prayer nook in one of the corners that you could, that you could use if you wanted to, a little, little corner tucked away. And I just sat there for about 20 minutes in the silence, reading through the questions, and considering the reality, as I was being asked to do in the exercise, that God knew me before I was born. That it was, that I was his idea. That I'm not just some random afterthought, but that I'm known. That I was thought of before the world was even created. And Francis had this thing at the end of each exercise. What you needed to do was you had to consider what you had just received from the Lord in that time away with him and then gather it together. It was super cheesy, but to gather it together like a little bouquet of flowers so you could go and share the aroma with other people. And I did. It was, I think the first time in my life I was like, oh my goodness, this is what it's about. <laughs> I, I was so filled with joy because of what I just realized about myself. I, I went downstairs into the atrium and I actually ran into Danny. We, we, weren't, we weren't even dating at the time. I'm surprised I didn't scare him off. But I, I ran up to him and I was like, Danny, I, did, <laughs> here's my, I didn't say here's my bouquet, but I said, I, 
I just had this wonderful time realizing things that I'd never thought about before. And there was so much joy. Moments like that, when you sense the Holy Spirit, when you know God's doing something in you, speaking to you, revealing things to you, there is this heavenly joy that can only come from communion with him. On a practical level, you know, start small, says now, and start with, with five or ten minutes. That might be all you can tolerate. But, but write it on your calendar if you need to, and, and be firm with other things that try to push it out. The enemy will always try to tempt us to, to replace that solitary time with God with something else. He'll always tempt us to, to jam-pack our schedules so much that we never have an opportunity to feel those empty spaces, to enter into those empty spaces. And he's going to tempt us to think, especially in this season, that the last thing that we need is more time alone. But Jesus desires the opposite for us. He wants us to come away with him to a solitary place so that we can be in his presence, so that we can be in communion with him, not to feel alone, but to feel alive, to know how near he really is, to hear his voice speaking over us, to become familiar with his way of speaking. It takes time to develop that relationship, right? But we, we grow in learning to be familiar with the voice of God speaking to us. That time, those times of solitude that Jesus spent with the Father was what gave him stability and assurance and, and focus in his day-to-day -day because he comes out of that solitary time with his Father again having a clear picture of who he is and what he's meant to do. That's how he lived. And he calls us too to follow him in this way. Whether it's, you know, five minutes, first thing in the morning, or while you're sitting at a stoplight, or as you're out for a walk, or, or embracing a few minutes before the kids come home. Pause. Just pause in those moments. Take advantage of those minutes. Pause and be still. Practice the discipline of listening for the Father's voice. Because in his death, Jesus paved a way for us to receive his Holy Spirit, which means that he now says to us, you have the means by which you can do what I did. You have the means by which you can commune with the Father in the way that I did. Follow my way because I've given my Spirit to help you. We never do this alone. We're never alone. Do not then, I urge you, do not then replace a moment with God for a quick scroll on Twitter or, or another item on the calendar. It is only in coming to Jesus that we can find rest. That we can know who we are, away from all of those other identities, away from everything else that defines us. Those things aren't bad, but again, we need to be reminded of our primary identity. To know that we are first and foremost at the very ground of our being, loved 
embraced, invited into relationship with the God who invented love, who is love, who demonstrated true love, and who now in Christ calls us the object of his love. Why would we not want to spend time with this God? Why would we not want to hear from this God? Let's pray. Living God, we ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would inspire us to enter the quiet spaces. Lord, that we might follow you in every endeavor, even in the ones that scare us, the ones that make us feel uncomfortable, the ones that we're perhaps even afraid of. Lord, give us courage to meet with you in those places, to hear your words of assurance speaking over us. Remind us, Lord, of who we are in you. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.